Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone. <coughs> Under the, uh, the new chromatic regime, our clock actually keeps accurate time, so we'll, uh, we'll make a start of it at, at noon today. Um, I think everyone knows me, but just in case, I'm Luis Cabrera, the co-convener uh, of the Griffith Asia Institute seminar series. And today we have the great pleasure to have our visiting research fellow at Griffith Asia Institute, Dr. Ronan Liu. Uh, she's assistant professor in the School of International Relations at the University of International Business and Economics in Beijing. She received her PhD in political science at Tsinghua University in 2016 and has been a visiting scholar at University of Groningen and the University of California, San Diego, where I was also a visiting scholar. What a, what a terrific place, huh? Um, her research mainly deals with international relations of Southeast Asia with a special focus on the security strategies of the Southeast Asian states and China-ASEAN relations. Um, she's currently involved in, in research aiming to contribute to a better understanding of Southeast Asian states' response to regional power transition. And her work has been published in a range of journals, including the Pacific Review and the Chinese Journal of International Politics. Today her talk is titled, Great Power Competition and the Evolution of Southeast Asian States' Hedging Strategy. So she'll speak for about 40 or 45 minutes, and then we'll open it to questions as usual. Okay, thank you, Ru. Uh, I'm very happy to be here in Griffiths for one month visiting, and as you have already introduced me, so there's no need for me to introduce myself. Uh, today what I'm going to present is uh, Great Power Competition and the Evolution of Southeast Asia State's Hedging Strategy. Uh, as uh, Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Sen Long said uh, in a keynote address in this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, that uh, he reviewed uh, the history of Southeast Asia's interactions with great powers first. Uh, first, the uh, colonial masters and imperial Japan, uh, uh, and during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States, and then uh, uh, he moved on to uh, the Sino-U.S. relations uh, in contemporary uh, international relations. And he said that Southeast Asia is no stranger to the great game of nations. Uh, and he also said that the U.S.-China bilateral relations is the most important in the world today, and how the two work out their tensions and frictions which <coughs> define the international environment for decades to come. So what he did, did, want, what he did not say, but he wanted to say, uh, it was um, if the two great powers cannot uh, settle down their disputes peacefully, and then it will be, be a disaster for everyone. So this uh, remarks, or this address reflected uh, Singapore's deep concern about uh, Sino-U.S. conflict. Singapore is not alone. Actually, this is this, uh, the, the this is also the concern for almost every Southeast Asia state. They, they, they worry is that one day that uh, Sino-U.S. conflict will force them to choose side. Uh, so. So Mr. Lee mentioned history, so if we uh, look at the history um, when Southeast Asia state, uh, when international relations of Southeast Asia came into a period of sovereign states as the main actors of international relations, and then we'll find some interesting phenomena. Because during the Cold War, we see a, a intense uh, competition between the Soviet and the United States. But there, are, there were still some states, like Indonesia and Myanmar, who was able to keep a middle position that between the two great powers. 
Uh, Indonesia did not join the socialist camp or the U.S.-led alliance, but maintained security. This is largely the case before, especially before 1965. Right? Be, uh, <coughs> And after that, and uh, Indonesia joined the anti-socialist camp, actually. Uh, and um, Myanmar was similar, and Myanmar acted as a buffer state uh, between India and uh, Thailand, uh, because uh, India at that time was a pro-Soviet, and Thailand was an ally of the United States, so uh, Myanmar acted like as a buffer state. So, so it's also able to maintain a middle position in the confrontation between Soviet and the United States. Uh, but um, after the Cold War, the, the situation is completely different. We see a modest competition between China and the United States. But even under such circumstances, there are still countries that abandoned the middle position, uh, like the Philippines, who took sides clearly with the United States and tried to balance against China on the issues of territorial disputes during uh, the 2012 and 2015. So this, uh, this gives us a very interesting question, or this gives us some, uh, we can see from this empirical puzzle that the intensity of great power competition and small powers taking side or not taking side is not linearly related. It's not linearly related. So from this empirical puzzle, we can uh, get the research question that what is the effect of the great power competition on Southeast Asia's hedging strategy. So hedging here, I just uh, uh, use very simple words to describe it because later I will elaborate on this concept. Uh, uh, hedging is just not to choose side or not taking side. Uh, and also uh, it's a policy or a set of policy to maintain a great power balance, to balance the relationships uh, with different great powers. <coughs> So after the research question, now here comes to the literature. Uh, there are a lot of literature discussing uh, the, uh, the relations between great power competition and the small power strategy. And uh, I divide them. Basically, they can be divided into two uh, groups. The first group is that uh, 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 some scholars believe that competition will enlarge division and undermine unity. Uh, for Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia is a region full of diversity, but over the years they have made great effort to uh, speak with one voice. So this such kind of competition, uh, according to some scholars, may enlarge their differences uh, <coughs> and undermine the ASEAN's unity. Uh, the first divide uh, is driven by location. Uh, <coughs> the gr a group of scholars believes that with, uh, uh, with Sino-US competition continues and Southeast Asia will divide into maritime Southeast Asia and continental Southeast Asia. And the former will, accommodate, uh, the former will uh, 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 keep a close relations with the United States because they are highly depend, depend on the maritime order that is maintained by U.S. Navy, and the latter will accommodate in China's rights because they they, they have they, uh, they are close to China and they have a lot of uh, cultural or historical connections with China. And another uh, and also some other scholars argue that this kind of divide can be driven by issue. Uh, some Southeast Asian states have uh, highly dependent on China's economy or trade with China. So uh, this may influence their attitudes on security issues that are related with China. And also another issue <coughs> that may tr drive this divide is territorial disputes. 
some Southeast Asia states have disputes with China and some do not. So this may also be a very important thing uh, uh, for us to look at their attitudes towards China's rights. So um, finally, uh, also uh, there are some scholars believe that domestic politics matters because uh, the uh, relations with United States and China are not only matters with uh, the strategic environment of those small powers, but also <coughs> the domestic politics. For example, Vietnam uh, needs to balance is uh, needs to balance uh, needs to keep. Uh, uh, for example, the relations. Uh, uh, for example, Vietnam's poli China policy related with this domestic, uh, uh, with domestic nationalism. If Vietnam gets too close to China or compromise too much on territorial disputes, and if this will provoke a domestic nationalist uh, movement, and this will give Vietnam government pressure. And also, if it gets too close to 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 to, to the United States, and the government will enter a high risk of peaceful revolution. So uh, this related with this domestic politics also makes Vietnam make, have to make tougher decisions when the competition continues. Uh, and also for Singapore and Malaysia, it's more easy, are more easier to understand because uh, relations, uh, economic relations with China uh, uh, will influence their prosperity. And also relations with the United States uh, will uh, uh, related related with the, these two uh, countries' security, so and all both prosperity and security have something to do with the government's legitimacy. So this is also a problem of domestic politics. And another group of uh, scholars uh, believes that the competition uh, argues the opposite, and they believe the competition will promote unity and reduce differences and increase welfare. And uh, a, a, a small group of scholars uh, thinks uh, see this if uh, argue this um, the, argue this point from uh, the perspective of constructivism, and they think that the external powers. Involve, uh, the external powers with outsiders when the competition or when they come into this region and this help the small powers to construct their same identity and will uh, make them f feel that they are together and they are they have uh, they share a lot of similarities and they should uh, should have a common stand to deal uh, in the interactions with the outsiders or external powers. And another, uh, also some scholars believe that this is um, because uh, the <coughs> great power competition will encourage the great powers to provide material goods uh, to small powers uh, because they uh, want to enlarge their influences, influence in this region. So they will provide material benefits like economic assistance or security guarantee or even concessions in some negotiations or uh, or most favored, uh, uh, most favored nation status, or something like that. So here I will not give uh, this example. I will not give this example. For example, uh, okay. uh, the literatures are very inspiring, but uh, there are still some problems because uh, almost uh, the uh, most of the literatures are oversimplified dynamic between great power competition and small powers uh, strategy uh, because the, the effect cannot be only summarized as good or bad. Uh, sometimes the, uh, the good will change into bad or the bad will change back to good. So what, what scholars need to do is to find the conditions of such kind of mutual transformation. This is the one 
point of the uh, shortcomings of the current literature. And next, uh, the second point I think is also the, the, the shortcoming of the literary, current literature is that uh, the current literature treat the effect as a static thing. They think that uh, the, the competition, um, um, they ignore the differences across time and evolution of the strategies over time. Uh, actually, some literatures pointed out different strategies at the same time as uh, as, I, as the first group of literature argues that this will make a divide and we can see different strategies at the same time. But uh, they ignore the certain, for a certain state that the, the, they, they may have different strategies over time. Their strategies may change. So uh, this is the, uh, about the literature. And then before the um, uh, theoretical, before I introduce the theoretical frameworks, uh, first uh, I think uh, I need to introduce about the key concept uh, in this uh, in this presentation. The first is hedging. Well, hedging is a is a is a, is a word of finance, and uh, international scholars of international relations borrow this concept from <coughs> finance uh, as early as 1990s or even earlier. Um, and now they give different, uh, they give a lot of uh, definitions of this world, of this, of this concept, like uh, policy based on multiple counteracting options that are designed to offset risk in international real, uh, system, or a strategy of pursuing opposing or contradictory actions as a means of minimizing or mitigating downside risk associated with one or the other action. So they are similar, but um, Hedging is a concept that commonly used uh, to describe small uh, powers strategies in facing with multiple, with, with more than one great power. But it's commonly used, but sometimes it is still ambiguous. Uh, because in, in general, we can say that everyone hedges. No one will put eggs in one basket. So in any bilateral relations, hedges <coughs> exist. So this makes hedge very ambiguous. So I think I need we need to make it very clear uh, by by making it clear that hedging hedge against the what? So the the, the object that the, the state hedge against. So uh, <coughs> so. This means that we have to make it clear that where does the uncertainty or risk comes from. Uh, here I uh, uh, use Cambodia as an example to show the ambiguity of the concept. For example, we, if we discuss Cambodia's hedging strategy, uh, but without making it clear that who, uh, what kind of where is the uncertainty or risk come from, and then we'll say that Cambodia hedged against the Vietnam, it, a powerful neighbor, it has to keep a close relations with China. But when Cambodia hedges against China, uh, China, it needs to keep a distance with China. So this uh, hedging itself does not tell us what will Cambodia do with China. So this means that hedging must. We must make it clear what is the object of the hedging. Uh, <coughs> and hedging itself not necessarily related with great powers, as the Cambodia case have already shown. So we need to narrow down the definition. Uh, the uncertainty we discuss in this presentation is uh, the uncertainty that created by the tra power transition. Uh, uh, it means that the small powers in the region that 
uh, do not know that whether China's rise will continue and whether United States decline will will continue, or what what kind of policy that China will adopt uh, towards the United States, and uh, whether this kind of relationship will uh, whether this kind of relationship will be peaceful. Um, so um, <coughs> this is the uncertainty. So heading here is that states can maintain a modest level of defense cooperation with United States while uh, still militarily or economically engaging China in a positive way. Um, uh, because this uh, concept, I put this concept here, this, this theory is not, only, uh, is not only applied to the United States and China. Uh, so uh, just the neighboring powers, a group, of, uh, a, a group of small powers and their neighboring great powers relations, uh, <coughs> not necessarily China and the United States. So hedging, um, we can say it's, not, it's just not taking side or balance of relationship with neighboring great powers. Uh, some similar words to describe that is dynamic equilibrium or eco-distance <coughs> diplomacy. Eco-distance diplomacy does not mean that the, 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 the state that adopts such policy can really realize the eco-distance with great powers. It's just uh, their willingness that they try to uh, balance the relationship with great powers. Um, this is about <coughs> And then strategic flexibility. Uh, strategic flexibility is the, also a very uh, important concept in this uh, presentation because uh, the, the, it, it, is <coughs> it is in the middle position that between great power competition and hedging. So great power competition limits Southeast Asia's hedging through providing different degrees of strategic flexibility. So uh, the different degrees of flexibility here, I uh, <coughs> use three levels of flag, uh, strategic flexibility to show the different degree of this flexibility. The first is autonomy. Autonomy means that uh, for Southeast Asian states or for smaller powers that in a region that compete uh, in a region that um, that's surrounded by uh, uh, the great powers that they are they have they don't have enormous pressure to take sides and they can have ordinary security engagement with one and this is not necessarily at the expense of the engagement with the other uh, but those. Ordinary security engagement should not include for forming a new alliance or allowing the great powers troops uh, deployed on its soil or uh, have substantial increase of defense expenditure with the help of a great power. So that's not uh, belongs to ordinary uh, security engagement. <coughs> so the autonomy is the it is the is the first level of strategic flexibility, and it's also the basic uh, flexibility. The second is uh, bargaining ability. <coughs> bargaining ability means that this is uh, a flexibility that means that uh, if states have bargaining ability uh, with interactions with great powers, means that usually it will have uh, autonomy. Usually it will have autonomy. Uh, and at this level of strategic flex flexibility, the small powers can ask for more assistance uh, from or market access or concessions from the great powers and get more material benefits from uh, from uh, great powers <coughs> because they, they they can bargain now. <coughs> for example, uh, during the Cold War, uh, as I have already said, that Indonesia and Myanmar. 
uh, enjoys some flexibilities even uh, during the Cold War. And uh, Kambu uh, in Indonesia, at, uh, sorry, in Indonesia at that time in the 1950s, and for example, want, wanted to buy some weapons from Soviet, and its officials said to the Soviet that. Uh, the United States promised to sell those weapons to Indonesia at a very, very low price. So this <coughs> is a case that Indonesia played the card, played the U.S. card in interactions with Soviet. So this means that it has a bargaining ability. Another case is that um, the <coughs> before the uh, before the end of Obama administration, and uh, a Singapore uh, senior diplomat told the United States that. The United States new president should know that Singapore has more, uh, more has many partners other than the United States. Means that Singapore played the China card in interactions with the uh, United States. So this is uh, some cases to show the bargain power, and this, <coughs> the, the third level of uh, of uh, strategic flexibility is the is the ability to shape the order. Um, because small powers usually lack material capacities, so the way it shapes uh, regional order is to build institutions or norms. So there are a lot of literatures discussing uh, the, 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 the Southeast Asia's, if we take Southeast Asia states as example, discussing Southeast Asia states uh, strategy to do that. For example, like enmeshment binding or institutional balancing. Uh, the ultimate goal of all of those uh, strategies is to constrain great powers. And another case, also uh, in, during the Cold War, is Myanmar and Indonesia, and they led <coughs> the non-alignment movement uh, in the mid of 1950s. And this is a way to express their uh, ex to, to express the. Uh, regional order that they want, what kind of regional order they want. They want a decolonized region, region without interference from, from the uh, external powers. But, uh, but at that time, because of the Cold War, and they do not have opportunities to realize that, but this is a way, this, this case that, sh that just to show that they have this uh, a way to, 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 to tell the world what they want. So from from the autonomy to uh, bargaining ability and to ability to shape the order and increased degree of flexibility. <coughs> and and did, uh, before I explain the relations that between great power competition and the strategic flexibility, first uh, we need to. Uh, <coughs> See the the different the the intensity of of great power competition, and from the left to the right, uh, the intensity of great power competition increased. Uh, first, uh, from no competition to inclusive competition, and then uh, finally to confrontation or war. Uh, so this is a process. Uh, what I'm going to concentrate is just uh, the. It's just uh, the, the inclusive competition with a special focus on these two periods, when the inclusive competition emerges and when the inclusive competition intensifies, and see how these two periods uh, will, how these two uh, intervals, or, or the competition in these two intervals will influence strategic flexibility and then influence hatching strategy. <coughs> 
first uh, go through this part very quickly. No competition. Uh, the great powers are not interested in this. In this, in, under these circumstances, the great powers are not interested in giving pressure or deeply engaging with small powers because uh, they do not have competitors. So, at, in under these circumstances, for the small powers, they are secure but not that valuable in the eyes of great powers. So, for them, that they have usually they have the first level of strategic flexibility. They have autonomy because no one will force them to choose sides because it's not necessary. But do not. But usually, does not have much bargaining power uh, or or order shaping ability. <coughs> so, uh, so when the uh, inclusive competition emerges, uh, the all the, the, the okay. So there are two characteristic of the inclusive competition. So uh, this is a new concept. So it means that all great powers enlarge its influence while do not aim to <coughs> exclude each other. And the second characteristic is no confrontation of ideology or exclusive treating blocks. Uh, this is com this is inclusive competition between great powers, and under such circumstances, the, the 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 small powers are not are most likely to have all three levels of flexibility, uh, because uh, I think that this is uh, is it's not difficult to understand. Uh, here um, uh, to understand. Okay, here I uh, di uh, di divide the small powers into two groups, and they may have different. Um, the their flexibility will uh, will be different uh, in, in when the inclusive competition emerges. So um, I'll, I'll introduce uh, who they are. The first group, uh, small powers, um, are the power are, are the middle powers in the region or small small powers that involved in security issues closely followed by great powers. Uh, <coughs> it means that uh, for the great powers, they are more important small powers, uh, if we understand it simply. And the group B um, are the pa small powers that are not involved in such issues, the marginal small powers that, uh, <coughs> that usually the great powers pay little attention to. Uh, but when the uh, uh, inclusive competition emerges for group A, and their flexibility will increase, and uh, they will become the targets uh, of the competition, and uh, great powers will try to uh, please them or provide different uh, uh, provides uh, provide <coughs> material benefits to them, and then they will have a larger, they will have higher strategic flexibility, and then they will make use of this uh, strategic environment and to adopt the hedging strategy. And for Group B, and they are. <coughs> Because the uh, the great powers now uh, paid little attention to them, so they lacked opportunity to change to hedging. Although maybe they want to, so their flexibility maintains and they remain bandwagoning or balancing. So they lack the motivation to change such kind of uh, uh, strategy. But when um, <coughs> but when the inclusive uh, competition intensifies. For group A uh, uh, powers, for group A small powers, the pressure of choosing sides will increases and the strategic room shrinks, because uh, because they're so important and the great powers will not allow them uh, to hold the, uh, ambiguous attitudes uh, and to keep a middle uh, middle position. 
uh, as a lot of cases show recently. Uh, for example, South Korea uh, used to suffer from uh, a, a pressure from the United States. United States wanted to deploy uh, a uh, uh, um, missile defense system on the soil of South Korea. So this, uh, uh, so South Korea suffered from uh, informal sanctions from China. This means that uh, South Korea's strategic flexibility reduces when Sino-U.S. competition intensifies. Uh, so largely, uh, they will have no choice but to, took side, but to take side, which means that they abandon hedging and turn to balancing or bandwagoning. But for Group B state, and this time, although they are marginal small powers, but, but now they become important because the competition becomes comprehensive and intensifies. So their flexibility increases, and that now they have the chance to turn to hatching. Uh, <coughs> so this is the this is the main uh, theoretical uh, framework of this presentation. And the last one is the confrontational war. Uh, if the competition moves to confrontational war, and this means that almost every small power has to take side. And but this, uh, I want to add another condition is the region, because um, um, in, in during the Cold War, as I uh, wrote here, during the Cold War, uh, the Europe is the core region of the confrontation. So we see a very rigid bipolarity, or even a risk of a nuclear war in Europe. Uh, so almost every country in Europe have to take side. Okay. But. Uh, we still see uh, some. We still uh, see some flexibilities left for countries in the edge of Southeast Asia, that is Indonesia and Myanmar, as I have uh, discussed before. <coughs> this is. Uh, I, I think I've uh, said a lot of things very abstract. Uh, next, I will move on to uh, to some uh, concrete uh, things, uh, and I use the theoretical framework to explain what happened recently, to explain the Sino-U.S. competition and its relations with Southeast Asia's hedging. Um, <coughs> China and the United States inclusive competition starts uh, started since the Asia financial crisis, uh, when China's economic growth steadily before that. And also, um, the, the China and the United States have uh, many uh, have met, had many conflicts on the security uh, issues. Uh, if we use, if we just look at uh, Southeast Asia as a region, and then this uh, issue, this security issues um, uh, was mainly the South China Sea issue. Uh, <coughs> In 1995, that um, when China got mischief reef from the hand of Philippines and uh, Joseph Nye, who worked as a secretary of uh, assistant secretary of defense, warned that the United States should pay attention to uh, what happened in Southeast Asia, what happened in South China Sea, and uh, prepare to defend the free freedom of navigation and overflight. And also in 1999, uh, the Philippines got. Um, the, the Philippines <coughs> occupied the second Thomas Shoal um, in that year. The day, the day right after China's embassy was bombed by the uh, China's embassy in Belgrade was bombed by the U.S. aircraft. So, Philippines knew that the South China Sea is not a problem between itself and China, but a problem between the United States and China. So, uh, although uh, we see some conflicts. 
on the South China Sea. But uh, South China Sea uh, crisis uh, did not uh, uh, was not enduring at that time because China lacked the ability to uh, challenge United States even in the offshore area at that time. So China had to adopt a policy called self-constraint. And in the overall Sino-U.S. relations at that time, and also South China Sea disputes, is not a, it's not that crucial. So this is why that I, I mean that they have competition, but the competition is still inclusive. It's because China's self-constrained, and why China uh, adopt self-constrained uh, policies because it lacks ability. <coughs> So uh, under this circumstance, what about Group A's uh, strategy? Uh, for Group A, uh, the, the Philippines and the Vietnam, Thailand, and also Indonesia, and they start to have higher uh, strategic flex flexibility. So their uh, strategy at this time is a very typical hedging. For example, the Philippines has uh, bilateral talks on territorial disputes with China. This security engagement, and also uh, China provides some security assistance to the Philippines, and uh, they have some. Uh, the two power, the two countries have some anti-terrorism -terrorism cooperation, and they. This is this one. Disagreement is more is more important. It's for. Uh, it's called the joint marine seismic undertaking, and signed by um, state-owned enterprises, state-owned oil enterprises from Philippines, Vietnam, and China, and this is a uh, preparation for a substantial cooperation on this disputed uh, disputed region uh, for the joint exploration. Um, but this ended in uh, 2008, <coughs> and Vietnam Vietnam's hedging. Uh, <coughs> Vietnam has, really, has uh, close relations with China at that time, so its hedging means that it starts to balance its relationship uh, 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 between China and the United States. So it starts to engage the United States in the early 1990s, and the two countries established their diplomatic relations in, in 1994, uh, and they, start to, uh, ha they, start to ha they started to have military engagements at a very high level uh, in 2000. In, in the year of 2000, and their cooperation enhanced uh, since 2005 because Vietnam joined uh, uh, U.S. led that military training. <coughs> For Indonesia, uh, I'll go through quickly because I do not have enough, not have enough time. Um, Indonesia have institutionalized heavy talks with China and also have started its talks with the United States at this time in this period, and United States lifting its arm embargo in. 2006, and Thailand. Thailand is a very interesting case because it's uh, ally of the United States, but a very uh, good relations with China. These are some some cases. Um, and at the same time, we see another evidence to show that Southeast Asia had states uh, for Group A states. They have a larger uh, flexibility. They have a higher flexibility. Is that um, <coughs> is that ASEAN's development that they have a louder voice and they have a greater opportunity to shape the regional order in their favor. Uh, we see uh, the development of ASEAN in this period very fast. They have increasing uh, partners and uh, many institutions. And also for Group B states at this time, uh, according to the theoretical framework that they lack the opportunity to hatch because they are not uh, in the eyes of 
United States and China, and China is, means that Brunei and the United States means the first three countries, Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia. They are not that important now, so they remain accommodating to China. I mean, the first three countries. Um, but since 2009 uh, or 2010, this changed because uh, Sino-US competition moves to inclusive competition. So this uh, moved to an intensified inclusive competition. Uh, both China and the United States changed. Uh, United States because it's pivot, I'll not elaborate on that. And China a little bit, uh, I would say a little bit more on, on China because China changed itself constrained or partly and gradually on territorial disputes. Uh, the State Council approved the establishment of Sansha in 2007 and the Diaoyu Islands is disputes between China and Japan, although not very close, uh, although do not have uh, close relations with uh, Southeast Asia, but still means that China's change because China uh, starts to patrol within the territorial disputes of, uh, of Diaoyu Islands in 2008, in the end of 2008, and also island building since 2013, this prompt opposition from the United States. Uh, so this means uh, the in, uh, inclusive competition intensified, so for Group A, that has become more difficult uh, and costly for Vietnam, especially in the 981 crisis when China uh, put an oil rig in this disputed area, and this uh, <coughs> This uh, makes uh, there uh, makes a crisis between China and Vietnam. So Vietnam has to cautiously balance the relations with China and the United States. It's more <coughs> difficult for Vietnam. So uh, the bottom line of such defense cooperation with the U.S. is not to irritate China because because uh, Vietnam shares borders with China, so it cannot irritate China at any time. Uh, for the Philippines' case, it's a little bit complex. I will try to finish it. Uh, finish it in a few minutes. <coughs> Philippines abandoned hedging because according to the theoretical uh, framework I just introduced, uh, that the strategic flexibility, flexibility for Group A at this time uh, shrinks. So for Philippines, it's a very typical case. It abandoned hedging and turned to balancing because of the Scarborough offshore standoff in uh, 2012. In China, we call it the Huangyan Island incident and all the security and political engagement with China suspended because of this. Um, and another case is that, the, another evidence is the arbitration. As the arbitration is right after this, uh, it's in 2013, but the result uh, uh, came out in 2016. But China refuses to accept the, uh, the, the tribunal uh, ruling. So this is a case, uh, this is an example to show that the Philippines changed. But a very interesting, what, what is interesting is that Philippines turned back to hedging in the second half of 2016 uh, because it cannot, uh, because this system remains, because the inclusive uh, competition uh, sent a, 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 a signal uh, from the system or the, the system signal is that it encourages hedging and hedging is the uh, rational way to maximize its profit and minimize its uh, risk in such kind of, uh, yes, it's the most rational way to, to, to. So, so the Philippines also cannot uh, get substantial support from the U.S. and also uh, 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 China uh, 
imposed informal sanctions on Philippines agricultural products, for example, the bananas. So this means that Philippine opportunism, opportunism uh, uh, did not get uh, what they want. So hedging is uh, what the system encourages. Hedging is the strategy that what this, the system encourages. So now, uh, because Philippines turned back to hedging, so now the arbitration now became a bargain chip now. Uh, um, <coughs> The Philippines never said that we will never will not mention arbitration. We just put it aside. So maybe one day we'll use the arbitration as a bargaining chip in relations with China. So uh, this is also a case that shows that Philippines turned back to hedging, and hedging is what the system encourages. Um, another thing is the the crisis, uh, not, not the crisis. When the, uh, another evidence to show the effect of intensified inclusive competition is the increased risk of ASEAN's split. Many cases show that ASEAN is facing an increasing risk of split. Uh, here I just say the most serious one, I'll finish in five minutes. Uh, the most serious one is uh, that uh, uh, took place in 2012 when the Cambodia in the foreign minister's meeting uh, uh, in, with, in, in ASEAN and his then <coughs> support China's stance and has a, a quarrel with the foreign minister of Philippines about how to word South China Sea. Uh, so because of their differences, uh, the, <coughs> the foreign minister meeting uh, did not issue a joint statement first time in 45 years since the establishment of ASEAN. So this means that uh, ASEAN split uh, was known to the public. Not only sometimes they have differences, but this under the table or close under the table or uh, behind the doors. But now this time it's known to the public. Another case is that 2015 in Malaysia, when the um, Asia uh, ASEAN Defense Ministers meeting plus, uh, because of chi China and the United States uh, have a huge difference on how to write about South China Sea, so there is no uh, joint statement. So this means that, so this shows that increasing risk of ASEAN split. For Group B this time, um, <coughs> for Group B now, they have a higher, uh, they have a higher strategic flexibility. So Myanmar and Cambodian Laos have more leverages in China and the United States. They were used to be labeled as pro-China states or clients, or even client states, for example, Cambodia. Uh, but now they want to show to the world that they are no longer the, the countries like that. Uh, so they become more important in the eyes of the United States, a new battlefield for the great powers. Several cases. Uh, first, uh, uh, Obama created a low Mongol initiative, uh, including the, these countries. And also uh, another case is that the United States starts to engage Myanmar after two decades of sanctions. So um, and also um, the uh, Myanmar uh, make use of this um, soon uh, get this change uh, got this change and make use of this the the the, the in make use of the increasing strategic flexibility and starts to in engage with the United States and show to the world that it want to keep a distance with China by suspending the Maison Dam. Uh, the Maison Dam, that this is not the way that the China and uh, Myanmar deal with their differences. Usually this, they will uh, talk secretly, or not secretly, they will talk uh, bilaterally about, about their disagreements if they have some disagreements on this dam. 
But this time, Myanmar uh, said it publicly that we'll suspend the, the Maison Dam that's invested by China's state-owned power enterprises, enterprise. So this is a way that Myanmar will send a signal that it's not the Myanmar before. Okay, two minutes. Okay, that's all we can finish. Um, <coughs> also, some cases, I'm going to finish very quickly, that the United States have initiative and China also have such kind of cooperations, very similar with the United States. Uh, they have similar functions and they aim to, and both of the such cooperation or initiatives uh, aim to reduce poverty or protect the uh, ecosystem or uh, to build uh, infrastructures. So they're very similar. So it's just the kind of competition in this region. In the, uh, in, in the Group B uh, countries. <coughs> so this means that uh, the when the inclusive competition intensifies, it means more, com more issues are included and more regions are covered uh, from traditional security issues to, regional to issues in regional governance. So, uh, okay, I think I will stop here. Uh, uh, okay, thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. Very rich presentation, lots of few different questions. Uh, if you just catch my eye, I will put you in the queue, and we'll take them, I think, one at a time. We have a good, good amount of time. Go ahead. Um, yeah, thanks for the talk. Uh, it sounds to me that it's very much a structuralist argument. <coughs> at any given point, these small powers are constrained by the external um, gaming between these great powers. Mm. And uh, so their autonomy are basically limit, uh, limited. I'm just wondering, is, is it possible that this, any, this could be a two-way street, that for these small powers to maximize their strategic flexibility, they could do something to, to influence the, the, the general competition? Between great powers, rather than you know, giving this straight jacket. Uh, answer now, or please, or uh, individually or collectively, because you didn't mention ASEAN as a as a group, but we're looking at the countries. Mm. Yes, I think they have. Uh, they can adopt some, they can do something to uh, influence the structure, but this is a matter of degree. So I think uh, why I uh, always treat, uh, in, 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 according to my theoretical framework, why I always treat small powers as the, as the, the ones that are suffering from this system is because I think uh, uh, they, they, they face, uh, uh, they, face uh, uh, they are in the international system that with high risk. So their domestic politics really matters, but uh, less important than the, uh, the domestic politics in great powers. Um, for example, uh, the United States' great, uh, domestic politics are really important because this great power can influence the world. But for, for small powers, they face pressure domestically and also systematically. So they will balance these two. And uh, when the, uh, they are full of risk or uncertainties in the international system, and then they will keep, they will put their domestic policy, politics priority aside and to deal with what happens in the system. So this is a, so I, I, I think, um, yeah, it's a matter of degree. Thank you. Colin? 
Can I make one observation and ask one question? Um, the observation is that one significant difference is between the great power competition of the 50s and 60s and what we're seeing between the US and China now in Southeast Asia is that there were no Soviet citizens living in Southeast Asia. There were significant ethnic Chinese populations in Southeast Asia. So I think you really have to build in more of the domestic imperative in the Southeast Asian countries because that does affect, in some cases anyway, the approach they have towards China. The, perhaps more importantly is you, you're talking about great power competition very much in bilateral terms. And that's how we've seen it, USR, USSR and USA, China and, and um, uh, the US. And you frame the theoretical construct around that. But if you look at what's going on in Southeast Asia today, particularly with respect to Indonesia, there's a third power pushing in there quite vigorously, that's Russia. The, the Indonesians have bought uh, advanced aircraft from Russia in recent years. They recently hosted a visit by a squadron of uh, bombers from Boston, I think it was, down in, in Biak. And they're clearly developing a relationship there. How does that affect the theoretical construct that you've uh, produced of, of hedging and balancing and so forth, if it's a, a trilateral competition, not just a bilateral one? Okay. Um, also, yeah, yeah, as you have already said, that Russia is a very important uh, player in this region. To not only Russia, but Japan. Yes, okay, good. Even South Korea, they have a robust economic relations with Southeast Asia state. Uh, yeah, um, so I think I, 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 there's nothing to respond. It's <laughs> a fact, but uh, for me, I think they are uh, middle powers or uh, not really uh, as great powers in the level that we discuss China and the United States in this region. Uh, if we, if, but of course, if we uh, see it from strategic uh, dimension, uh, maybe China and the United States are most important. And but if we see that economic uh, on economic issues, maybe Japan is a very important player, and maybe uh, Indonesia has close relations with Russia too. So. Uh, yeah, maybe I will consider about this. Okay, thank you. Peter? Um, thank you, Francis, for that, for that, that presentation. That was uh, very good. It, I'm sort of with, with Stephen there about the, about the agency should be sort of agency and structure. It seems very uh, deterministic, um, and it seems a little dark in the sense that um, there only seems one way out of this. You know, you go from hedging, then China gets more, gets more, gets more powerful. So, as you've said, then the states start balancing, mm. and then the next step is confrontation mm. and war. So, is it is it just a one-way street? Is the rise of China then, under your model, as China becomes more powerful and more assertive, all states must choose? Is that is that what you're saying? They must choose to balance. So can, can you say it in one or two sentences, simply? Okay, so you showed us the diagram before that the states move it's, from hedging. It, yes, it's not a one-way. It's just, it, it appears one way, uh -huh. just a one-way thing, because as, as China, at being a structural model, mm. as China uh, becomes more powerful and more assertive, the structure is forcing all the states to choose. That's it. Uh, is, it, is, it is it as black and white as that? Black water. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think. I, I think China will. 
as when, when China became more assertive mm -hmm. or China uh, wants more, and for example in the disputes, if United States step back and then the intensified uh, and then the inclusive competition maintains, this is what what I mean. So it depends on their uh, the rooms they left for small powers. Right. It's not a okay. yeah. It's two two powers. I'll take one. Um, building on that just a little bit, I'm, I'm curious because it, it does seem like the model, um, it, it, a critic might say it explains too much. Um, so what I'm, what I'm wondering is, did you find a case that your model didn't seem to explain very well? Is there a case out there where it doesn't quite fit and, and what would you do with that case or what, had, what did you do with that case? Our questions better than we did, so would yeah. you like to respond? Yeah. Um, uh, what I'm thinking about when I'm making this uh, PPT is um, the, 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 the opposite case is now because uh, it's not a one, one country or two countries, but what happened now, it seems that uh, Trump uh, paid little attention to this region. So it seems that when the China-U.S. China-U.S. competition intensified, but uh, geographical competition politics, or it may not be that as important as I have mentioned in the in the PPT. So uh, uh, maybe the Trump will pay more attention to trade relations, trade war, trade conflict, economic uh, issues, or uh, what happened in North Korea. So Southeast Asia is not that important. So it seems that um, for Group B countries, as I have listed in the, in the PBT, that, that their flexibility does not enlarge, or does not increase. So because of the, 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 the focus of US policy changed in the new administration. So th this is what I think, that this may face some problems. So once again, the Trump administration <laughs> gives a theorist problems. Yes. yes. This happens a lot. 
<laughs> you, you try to work out, especially if it's a rationalist model. So, um, okay, Kai? Uh, no, I just have one comment. And I think if I understand Roland correctly, uh, her structural variable is not a Chinese uh, you know, assertiveness. Uh, her structural variable is the competition between U.S. and China. Uh, you know, U.S.-China is, is not depending on uh, one country's foreign policy. It's kind of a two-way street. Uh, so the, the competition can be low or high or can be from, from in the competition can also mm -hmm. change from, mm -hmm. from high to low. Mm -hmm. yes. So it's not necessarily Chinese foreign policy will determine those other countries' behavior. Um, and also talk about the domestic variable. If I understand correctly, the domestic variable is a latent variable in the model, which is the, the, the called the strategic uh, flexibility, which is you know included the bargaining ability of the country. Uh, so my suggestion is not a question for Rona. Maybe you should uh, um, consider how to measure this domestic variable uh, wisely. Um, because right now you have uh, three indicators which are very difficult to measure. And uh, go back to Lou's question, which case you cannot explain to this model. I think maybe you consider the Philippine case is kind of, you know, you, because in your presentation you talk about the, the, the dramatic change, you know, after Duterte came to power. It seems domestic, uh, you know, factor play a more important role uh, in, you know, in shaping the Philippines foreign policy uh, during the current administration, the Duterte. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can just recognize that, see, mm -hmm. my model cannot explain everything, um, but uh, my model can explain the most, uh, you know, the, the the most uh, common pattern of behavior in Southeast Asia. But uh, there are some country we cannot explain, which is uh, driven by the leadership instead of uh, the structure uh, factors. Yeah. Thank you. And just out of curiosity, would would you um, claim the the label of neo-realist, structural realist? Because I, I noticed you didn't offer, you didn't, uh, you didn't lay your card on the table there and say what kind of theorist you were. Yeah, it's a structural explanation, but um, yeah, I know. Uh, actually, I, I know that what kind of questions that I will face after this presentation is domestic. Uh, the variables of domestic politics should be included in this, uh, but it's, it's always difficult and challenging to give a structural explanation, but I think it's still very important uh, because China uh, has to, uh, uh, China needs to understand this region as a whole. Sometimes we need to understand the, the trend or what they will do as a whole. So it's not, uh, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's, it's a new classical realism. Ah, okay. <laughs> Neo-classical neo realism. Yeah, neo-classical realism. Yeah. It's trying to incorporate domestic variables, yes. especially how domestic politics is perceived, how that transmits into structure. Just neo-classical realism. Mm. So actually what I'm going to do next is to uh, write something to, from the bottom to the top. Uh, domestic politics is just one dimension. Another dimension is also uh, I said that the sub-region structures, for example, uh, the, 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 for example, the Cambodia's position that between Thailand and Vietnam, this is a very uh, sub-region structure, and Cambodia faces threats from both sides. So this this uh, determine or not determine, but this influence it's uh, accommodates to China. It needs an outside protector protected in this sub-region. So this may also influence its stance on South China Sea. 
So it makes that it, it has a stronger stand to support China than the Laos. So um, this is this may also become a, this is also a bottom up uh, uh, factor, and also um, uh, some some factors that may that may constrain such kind of structural uh, dynamic is. Uh, maybe norms of ASEAN as a, as a whole. So there are many levels. So the, uh, so I so I just said that it's a matter of degree, but it's very hot topic to discuss great powers, uh, competition and South Asia strategy. Okay. Very interesting. Okay, I'd like to invite our HDR colleagues to uh, to ask a question. Uh, just. Uh, you know, when you present, uh, try to classify between UK and UK, and you put Cambodia in group uh, In your first model, you said something like uh, this group B will turn to balancing by weakening when inclusive competition, <coughs> when inclusive competition emerges, right? Yeah. And later no. on, when inclusive not turn to but remain remain yeah. balancing when when inclusive competition intensifies, this group B will tend to hedging, according to you, because uh, the great power gives more significance to these countries, uh, to start to give material benefits to this country, like economic yes, benefits yes. in the future. I think the case of Cambodia can be quite the opposite. Uh, when inclusive competition emerges, uh, Cambodia seems to hedge again between the two. But when inclusive competition intensifies, uh, Cambodia seems to bend wagon not to hedge. For example, uh, recently, two years ago, Cambodia cancelled, without any you know, notice, cancelled the joint military exercise with the US. <coughs> Later on, recently declined so the, the US request to get its uh, naval base. So it seems that the, the case of Cambodia could falsify your work. Yeah, I, I think that uh, if you, uh, if, if I want to uh, uh, establish a theory that is so big, so it will face many cases as opposite opposite cases. Uh, Cambodia is one because of the election, so it do not have a very good relations with the United States last year or the year before, right? And also, Thailand is another case, as Ru uh, asked me whether I can give an opposite case. Thailand is also the case, because after the military coup in 2014, it, it, its relations with the United States became uh, not that good. So, uh, yeah, if you, um, domestic politics is, uh, yeah, this is a challenging here. <laughs> Other HDR comments. PhD candidate for David. Did you want to do another this PhD? <laughs> Not into this. This is, this is way out of my league. Uh, but I just was curious when you mentioned that the difference between uh, the, the uh, peninsular states and the, and the uh, continental states and their relation with China is that be, is, is a lot of that because of the overseas Chinese presence in Laos, Cambodia, uh, and so on, uh, that, 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 that this, this makes the relationship fairly different. And certainly in, certainly in Myanmar, you don't think so, Kai? No, Singapore, we have a lot of Chinese, as, as in Chinese, but Singapore is a very strange mm. 
you know, so you, you cannot just put the ethnic uh, factor in this kind of strategic uh, relations. But I mean, there's a lot of, in, in, in Laos and Cambodia, and I think in Myanmar places as well, there's a lot of very active development going on of, of, uh, with, by, by people from China coming in, uh, in these developments. You mean investments, right? Investment, investment developments, yes, yes. You know, yeah, what do you, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, it's overseas not Chinese, what kind of role overseas Chinese plays in the China relations? With, what, you mean what kind of roles the overseas Chinese you know, plays? What I mean is, is, is the fact that there, are so many, there is so uh, much Chinese yeah. development. I use the term overseas Chinese incorrectly. Yeah. There's so much Chinese development in these states that are contiguous with China that that might have a, a much bigger influence on them than it would with the states that are further away, such as mm -hmm. Indonesia where there is a Chinese presence, but it's mainly old, and here the case, overseas Chinese is correct, with people without that much connection with China today. Uh, yes, but I think this depends on, this is not because they are close to China, it's because uh, some history reasons. For example, the overseas Chinese in Malaysia, uh, the, the, they, they have a good relation with China, but in Indonesia it seems not like that. So uh, it's not, uh, 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 yes. So I think David's point, if, um, if you're correct, we will see consistency in that behavior. Um, and um, Soweda is working on his dissertation, and he has evidence to show changes of Cambodian behavior towards Chinese investments as well. Mm. So there, there is some dynamic as well. Uh, there is not just consistent Any closing questions? Right. Let me just affirm that um, very ambitious and very plausible story you tell. Um, so it's a very impressive presentation. We thank you for being here with us, and thanks to everyone for joining us.